Good evening. End of the first day. We've made it this far. I was reflecting a bit this afternoon on how it is to give the talk at a residential retreat at the end of the first day. And it felt important to name just how we are taking a look at what freedom means what freedom means for us personally and on a spiritual path, and the larger sense of what freedom means for our country, for our world. And so much of my heart is drawn to more collective and systemic approaches to Dharma practice and Dharma sharing today, and I want to name that I'm making a choice in this evening's talk to really focus on on the internal dimensions of our path of practice. The Buddha taught in the refrain of the Satipatthana Sutta, with every object of our attention, there's the instruction to notice how it is internally on the inside, to notice how it is in the world around us, and to notice both. And there can be a sense of, of how this retreat is situated is within quite trying times for so many. And, you know, just a sense of being kind of within this massive curriculum of how it is to be human at this time and not to miss that we are in the zeitgeist of our time. Which, in a certain sense, uh, brings forth the preciousness and purposefulness of what we're doing here together. Why show up? Why keep coming back to the breathing? You know, why open to love and compassion, because when you open to love and compassion and wisdom, you actually have a lot more choice in how you respond. You have the capacity for your heart to become restored, to become more responsive, to become more real with yourself. Did you find yourself having ideas about, you know, how this retreat might be, what it would be like to return to practice with masks on and in the silence? Did you have ideas about it? Is reality lining up with your ideas about it? You know, the the practice, the instructions we're giving you, they're pretty simple. They're pretty straightforward. And we're not used to being simple. We tend to be used to figuring things out. We tend to be used to thinking about things. That's what the untrained mind knows how to do. We tend to be prepared to defend, to explain, to chew on stuff. And that all has its place. It's just not what we're, what we're doing here. And no matter how long you've been practicing, the first day of the retreat is like, I know for me, sometimes the first day of a retreat's Well, it's pretty much never a walk in the park, as strenuous in a certain way, whether you've been practicing for a week or for 25 years. And I want to talk tonight about how this path is a path of happiness. All the Buddhist teachings point us in the direction of happiness. And and I'm not talking about the happiness that comes from getting what you want for lunch. 
I'm not talking just about the happiness that comes when your relationship's going well or you like where you live. I'm talking about the kind of happiness that has to do with the presence of peace, that has to do with our capacity to harmonize with and know directly the presence of peace. Because the path is really, what we're doing here is, is really a, it's a kind of progressive, ever-refining path of joy. And it's, it's important that we look at the suffering, because there's plenty of it. And it's also so uh, revolutionary, in a certain sense, to not let the suffering take up all the space. Because the Buddha, you know, he never taught about suffering without teaching about the end of suffering. They go together. First and third noble truths, they go together. And you might just notice when you hear me say the word happiness, what happens inside of you? Happiness. Happiness. Just in this moment when I say the word, I feel a stirring in my heart. I feel the presence of of just a very deep, sacred kind of longing or yearning. I feel that potential for ever-deepening happiness, the kind that lives, that comes from knowing the truth of our own deepest hearts. The Buddha was often called Sukhiya, which means the happy one. You know, we can look so grim in here, masked, walking around slowly looking at the floor. <laughs> but the path isn't actually grim. It, it, it's, a, it's a path of, of Sukhiya. And the way that we're practicing is pointing us to a happiness that is more expanded than conventional views, more expanded, broader, a broader view of a happiness that has to do with presence, that has to do with knowing and living really more of who and what you are. And, you know, the the normative culture, because I haven't taught a residential retreat in a while, I don't really have all my files on me, but I used to have this file of advertising of advertising that basically gives us the message that happiness lives in a thing. And that thing is always outside of oneself. And that if you acquire it, you get gratified, you get it, that's the ticket. So the normative culture, you know, trains us in clinging. It goes so, so, so deep. Trains us in confusion, in the externalization of what belongs to each of you and each of your own deepest nature. So in a very real sense, some of what we're training here is a new way of perceiving, a deeper way of perceiving. We're moving from a kind of object-focused superficiality to a much more penetrating understanding that's experiential, that's mysterious that's alive. We're training a flexibility in 
the perception that gets so hardwired. Many of you probably know Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass. Just a wonderful book. Yeah, she's amazing, huh? Total Dharma. Total Dharma in here. And she uh, writes about animacy in the natural world. She writes about animacy. And the word animacy means the state of being alive. The state of being animate. For some of you, this may be the state of being sentient. And she says, English doesn't give us many tools for incorporating respect for animacy. In English, you're a human or a thing. Our grammar boxes us in by the choice of reducing a non-human being to an it, or it must be gendered inappropriately as a he or she. Where are our words for the simple existence of another living being? Because on retreat, you have the time and space and presence to take in, in an animate way, the living beings around you. you know, it's like the concretizing a perception. Here is Aaron, there's the tree out there. That's, that's one way of looking at it. That's one way of knowing our, our experience of perception. And then when we get really present and get really curious, it's like, it's much more of a verb, right? much more of a process, because the tree is alive and so am I. And even the space between us can feel alive in a certain way. She says, when I'm in the woods with my students, teaching them the gifts of plants and how to call them by name, I try to be mindful of my language, to be bilingual between the lexicon of science and the grammar of animacy. Although they still have to learn scientific roles and Latin names, I hope I'm also teaching them to know the world as a neighborhood of non-human residents, to know that as Thomas Berry has written, we must say of the universe that it is a communion of subjects, not a collection of objects. Do you feel the difference in that? A communion of subjects of which you, each of us, life itself is a part. That's much more of a um, sense-based way of perceiving, perceiving, excuse me. Much more of a perceiving the activity of awareness, for example, rather than forming around the idea of awareness, for example. And so the way she's speaking about animacy, she's, she's taking what we might think of as being a noun and really bringing forth the sentience and aliveness, which is some of the way of seeing that we cultivate as we practice insight meditation to allow nature to reveal itself to us. This, this practice is one of Intimacy. This practice is one of touching very closely what's happening for you in a way that's you know, really, really framed up by these ancient teachings and in a way that invites us to stay with what we tend to be so busy that, that we just don't 
We don't see it for what it is. And this is part of why the Buddhist teachings on happiness are so radical, because happiness isn't just an emotional state that you get to and stay at. Right? This is the happiness of wisdom infused with love that can be there in a moment of grief, heartbreak, that can be there in a moment of a, of a difficult uh, memory or a feeling of shakiness. You know, and again and again, returning to the truth that awakening only lives here and now. Where else, where else would your unfoldment and awakening happen? You know, we get to see sitting up here, we get to see so many beautiful things that happen over the course of retreats in this hall. And the path of happiness has a lot to do with the kinds of perception being cultivated So it's really a radical reorientation to be practicing a map that's guiding you in the direction of peace. And if your confidence is low today, if you're thinking, why the heck did I come here? This is hard. Or I came to get rid of suffering and all I'm doing is suffering. You can draw on my confidence because I have deep, deep confidence in this path. You can... You can draft off mine. And I was reflecting on how, in my early years of retreat practice, retreats were one of the hardest things that I did in my life, coming from a life with some measure of advantage for sure. The retreats were hard. And um, I, always, I always promised myself that I would never sit another one. You know, at the end, I'm, not, I'm never going to do that. I'm going to stay home in my bathtub, thank you very much. But in a little while, something would draw me back. Like something I knew in my bones, an intuitive knowing that I couldn't exactly explain. And now, you know, having been practicing on this path for 28 years, so many of my happiest moments are actually on retreat because there's the time to really sink into um, a deeper way of seeing and a deeper way of living. And I'd like to think of it as being a bit subversive when we practice happiness in this way. I like to think of it as a way of divesting from the messages the culture tells you about yourself that aren't true. You know, divesting from systems of control and oppression and dominance that are profoundly reductive. And so the word, when Dara guided us in the, in the refuges last night, the word namo, namo tasa, namo, is a beautiful word. Namo, and Matthew talked about reverence. Namo is this bow of reverence. When we, when we say the Pali word namo, there's a spirit of honoring that which is worthy of honoring. There's a spirit of devotion on a heart level. And so 
we're cultivating something that gives us a more trustworthy ground to return to than what the mind thinks it knows. They're two very different things. Kind of like listening to a flow of reality from a different place, a place that's more sensate-based than thought-based. And because it's natural to feel overwhelmed, because it's natural to feel somebody on their interview sheet said they felt appropriately anxious. That's smart. I get it. I, I do too. Um, it's, it's natural to feel overwhelmed in these ways. Cultivating a deeper ground to hold the big waves is like a power that is very kind for ourselves and our communities. So we study how we fall into suffering and out of suffering. And I'm, I'm talking right now about the suffering we create for ourselves. I'm not talking about all the very real forms of surplus suffering in, the, in this world. Part of why I wanted to talk about this tonight is I had a huge spell of technological dukkha in the six weeks before coming here. You know, especially in the pandemic, I really rely on my computer for my work. The Zoom meetings, the working with students, the teaching from the computer, it's like kind of a big part of my life. Well, about uh, maybe six weeks ago, my cat ruined my computer. And I love this little creature, right? I love this little creature, but I did not love what she did. And uh, I was really frustrated, but I have great friends. One of my friends gave me a loaner computer. I borrowed his computer until my new computer came. And then I got my new computer, Again, being aware of the class privilege to be ordering a a computer from Apple, um, my cat destroyed my new computer. And I couldn't ask my friend for the loaner again because it was already like a really big ask. And the computer's gone, including the, um, the hard drive inside of it. And so I was, I was pretty upset that second time. And I could see that, that in my mind there was this momentum of, of pretty much a disproportionate response. Like, it's not going to do any good (laughs) to get really upset about this, and I can get another computer. So I went without a computer for a while and tried to do everything from my phone. But it was this fascinating study in my mind because I could feel the kind of almost false power of the reactivity about the second computer being destroyed by my cat. Like, do you know how that feels? It almost feels like gratifying to be upset about something. And then I started getting curious, like, what is possible right here? Like, what is possible right here? It was just immediate. You know, the recognition of peacefulness that's right, right here as well, the spaciousness, that the choice point to kind of feed the reactivity or settle back into the mindful awareness. And so... I realized that in the middle of all of it, what was possible right there was some measure of freedom. Because I was creating my own suffering. You know, the situation was just, just as it was. And so I started this practice of looking at what's not wrong. Because it's so easy to see what's wrong, to see what we, what we don't have that we want. And what happens in a moment if you feel what's not wrong, like right now. How does it shift 
your experience if you tune in here this evening to what's not wrong. There are plenty of things that are wrong. (laughs) Also tuning in to what's not wrong. What's not wrong is our radiance. What's not wrong are the wholesome intentions that brought you here. What's not wrong is being willing to really do the practice and show up wholeheartedly. What's not wrong is the incredible generosity of so many people that allow us to be here in this way. And so much more. But when we tune into what's not wrong, sometimes it can settle the system enough to touch more deeply what's really happening. So the mistaken perception, right, is that happiness comes from getting what we want. And it does. It does to a certain degree. You know, it does to a certain degree. But the real happiness comes from the clinging stepping back. Now, the real happiness comes from a moment when we're not inside of the clinging. The clinging doesn't have to be a problem, but we're, when, we're, when we're inside of it, it can become a real, a real problem. And the mind does not want to feel the sensation of loss. It wants to get it again. You know, and then we're living in this narrowed place where the heart's not very open. It's fragile. I was talking about many of the ways that the practices taught here at IMS are from the Thai forest lineage, people who lived in the forest, the great teachings and dharma of the forest. And one of those um, beautiful teachers, Ajahn Shah, this quote is used a lot, but it's a good one. And he's talking about what I'm pointing to. He's talking about the mind. He's like he's talking to us about our minds. And he says about this mind, in truth, there's nothing really wrong with it. It is intrinsically pure. Within itself, it's already peaceful. The mind is not peaceful these days because it follows moods. The real mind doesn't have anything to it It's simply an aspect of nature. It becomes peaceful or agitated because moods deceive it. He says the untrained mind is stupid. Sense impressions come and trick it into happiness, but the suffering, gladness, and sorrow, but the mind's true nature is none of those things. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. It forgets itself. But really, this mind of ours is just like a leaf, which is still as long as no wind blows. But if a wind comes up, the leaf flutters. The fluttering is due to the wind. The fluttering is due to those sense impressions that the mind follows. If the mind doesn't follow them, it doesn't flutter. 
And if we know the nature of these sense impressions, we will be unmoved. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. Can you sense that feeling in yourself when there's the flutter? And when there's the intrinsic purity, peacefulness, restfulness? And so we need to train to know both. You know, sometimes we'll be like, oh, all all there is is the flutter. I'm just da-da-da-da-da. And sometimes it's like, oh, there's all the peace. And and it's important, you know, we just want to kind of look at where where are we at in the practice because we're not here to bypass anything. You know, the only way out is through. Touching, holding, knowing fully, because if we try to um, let go before touching, we're just going to get tighter and tighter. It's this long process of conscious awareness that allows for the letting go that brings a sense of love and wisdom and freedom. So on retreat, it's, it's good to enjoy all the goodies. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've been on retreat here. Remember when they had the, um, was it the gym in the basement? The, mm-hmm. g- the gym, and I, had a, I did a three-month retreat, and I was in one of those little rooms downstairs, the old ones that aren't there anymore, and there's just a little window up top and old carpet, and just sitting and sitting in this room, and I realized I'm like, perfectly content. You know, it wasn't the room that made me content. It was the momentum of the practice and what was happening in the practice. But I, I, I bring that to mind once in a while. Because it's so natural to project pleasure, that pleasure's out there. I often tell the story that before the pandemic, when I was traveling around the country a lot, too much actually, um, teaching retreats, and I would teach these retreats that were a really big, big output. And I had this little um, ritual before I left home is that I would put a triple creme brie piece of cheese with truffle mushrooms in it in the cheese drawer in my fridge because I knew I would want to eat it when I got home. And there was a way that just this, this association with having this bite of cheese was so pleasurable for me. It was so relaxing for me. And I started getting curious, what's going on in me that this piece of cheese represents so much? It kind of represented to me, I'm home. I'm not in public in front of a bunch of people. <laughs> it just represented all of that. And, um, and it was so funny, I, I began to see how I was like projecting into the cheese my nervous system sense of relief. You know, it was never about the cheese. It was about me having the time and space to get current with myself and to put my feet on the ground of where I live. And so everything we're doing on this path, the Buddha Dhamma, is really offering us a um, much more vast pointing to the possibility of peace and happiness. And we study our fundamental confusion. We study Um, 
the places where we get stuck. And on the retreat, just give yourself the gift moment to moment of, is it possible to notice the peace of simple awareness when you're standing in line for breakfast? Is it possible to notice the peace of simple awareness when you're walking and you're feeling wobbly and not sure what pace to go? Is it possible to notice that? Although I never sat with Suzuki Roshi, I really appreciate his teachings a lot. And he would ask his students, he would ask them, what is your heart's innermost request? What is your heart's innermost request? Something you might just bring up from time to time. And, you know, what happens if we let our lives and our practices be guided by this orientation of the heart's innermost request? Because I think it has to do with a deeper draw. I know for me, my heart's innermost request has something to do also with the way I, not only the way I want to live, but the way I would hope to die. But it underlies what brought you here in one way or another. It underlies what brought you here. And for me, I really don't know of something more essential to living well than the practice and the teachings. And you can see from the way that we're offering instruction, there's, there's basically three primary things that we're, that we're doing here. And the first is we're quieting the mind and collecting the attention. We're we're gathering, we're bringing in all that disparate, jagged energy, smoothing it out, making it available in the heart, the mind, the body, because when there is stability in this way and the mind is collected, it's just not run around by desire in the same way. We're gathering our attention and, and really coming to know the power of gathering in this way. And, you know, if you were learning to play the piano, you probably wouldn't just come here and expect, expect to play a sonata. You'd practice, right? With notes, chords, arpeggios. And then just a reminder that meditation really is a practice for our whole lives. You know, for our whole lives, it's a practice. And, and you don't have to be perfect in, in what you're doing here, you don't have to be perfect to do this. And the person next to you doesn't either. And it's a real art to learn how to enter a retreat and be perfectly imperfect. How to enter a, re- a retreat when the actual practice is messy. It's not framed up in the actual experience. It's messy. And when we trust the process in a certain way, there's a kind of settling and relaxing that happens so that, so that a, 
so that we can be confident in what's called path activity. What we're doing here is path activity. We're practicing the Eightfold Path. And right mindfulness is one uh, limb of an Eightfold Path. This is a whole life path. You know, right mindfulness is one very, very important limb. It's not the only one. But if you could just check, oh yeah, you're, you're engaged in path activity, let the rest take care of itself. And, and as we trust in this way, there's a... I'm careful to use the words letting go. I think it's more of a letting be when we let be. Letting, letting go, the wisdom lets it go. We don't exactly let go for the most part. The wisdom does. And so on retreat life, when you've, you know, you've had to give up some things to be here, you're not very in control of your schedule or your room or your food. Um, and it's good practice because life, life makes us let go. We, we, we lose people we love. We um, grieve for our world. And letting go. Letting be. So just coming back, you know, is anything really wrong with this moment? And then feel what happens if there's some softening, if there's some widening. And then we, you know, we, we talk about um, being awakened. Gil, I like Gil's term. He says it's also being compassioned. So we, we become awakened, we become compassioned, and our world becomes richer. Our world becomes so much richer, like how Robin was speaking, Robin Wall Kimmerer, about the animacy, the grammar of animacy. You know, noticing uh, me as a verb, you as a verb, all the space between us as a verb. So we become compassionate, and there's a deeper and deeper love affair with reality, a deeper love affair with the path. Cynthia Ocelli says, for a seed, the seeds will be sprouting here before too long. <laughs> Spring's got to come and bury, right? <laughs> Spring will come and bury. For a seed to achieve its greatest expression, it must come completely undone. The shell cracks, its insides come out, and everything changes. To someone who doesn't understand growth, it would look like complete destruction. So you can be a, be a seed as you are here. Hmm. I'm just feeling into what else I want to share with you. It's helpful, those of you who have been practicing for a time, it can be really helpful to just kind of like Look back once in a while. Don't, don't make this a thought project on this retreat. That's unhelpful. But to just look back a bit and just, oh, do I know more happiness and peace than I did three years ago? 
Yeah, about five years ago. How about seven years ago? Before I close with a poem, I'll share a few words. You know, I think about Julia Butterfly Hill, who spent 738 days in the massive redwood called Luna. Kind of makes a week here seem pretty cushy. Yeah, but she, she talks beautifully about finding our own true north as being like a, like a compass. And, and she talks about how we're tricked into believing that the true north is outside of us in a, in a production-driven society. And she's just talking about how you know, our true north is very, very much inside of us. And to follow what we love, to follow the heart's innermost request. And how that creates a different responsiveness, a different capacity. And the truth is, we have to have a reservoir of something inside of us that is not distraught to show up with the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And so this is a place and a time and a week to cultivate that deep reservoir, that deep pool inside of you. I came across a Charlie Brown cartoon a while ago, and in the first box, Linus was saying to Charlie Brown, you look kind of depressed, and he had kind of had a flat look on his face. And Charlie Brown said, I worry about school a lot in the second box. And in the third box, they're walking, and he says, I also worry about worrying about school. And then he sat down, and he said, my anxieties have anxieties. So it feels like that sometimes, right? Just this snowball of what goes on. And so some, some lightness and humor goes a long way. And we're in the liminal space together. And we started coming in yesterday very much in this space of you've departed some measure of the familiarity of your world. You're here, but there's not some concrete world here. That's not the point. You know, and more and more um, in the way things are at this time, our capacity to travel in liminal spaces is, is a great strength and, and very much needed, very much needed liminal spaces so that we can develop new ways of responding so that we can, uh, you know, it's like letting go of one thing when the other thing's not quite there yet. And that is the progress of insight. You know, opening to tolerating. I think Matthew was talking about that. Opening to tolerating all of the, um, all of the changes mourning <laughs> for, for who you maybe once were, maybe what you didn't understand, but not... Uh, identifying just with your suffering, having some confidence in the goodness of your hearts. This is a poem called Waiting by Lisa Lowitz. 
You keep waiting for something to happen. The thing that lifts you out of yourself catapults you into doing all the things you've put off, the great things you're meant to do in your life. But somehow you never quite get to them. You keep waiting for the planets to shift, the new moon to bring news, the universe to align, something to give. Meanwhile, the pile of papers, the laundry, the dishes, the job, it all stacks up while you keep hoping for some miracle to blast down upon you, scattering the piles to the winds. Sometimes you lie in bed terrified of your life. Sometimes you laugh at the privilege of waking. But all the while, life goes on in its messy way, and then you turn 40, or 50, or 60. And some part of you realizes you are not alone, and you find signs of this in the animal kingdom. When a snake sheds its skin, its eyes glaze over. It slinks under a rock, not wanting to be touched. And when a caterpillar turns to a butterfly, if the pupa is brushed, it will die. And when the bird taps its beak hungrily against the egg, because the thing is too small, too small, and it needs to break out. And midlife walks you into that wisdom. This is what transformation looks like. The mess of it, the tap, tap, tapping at the walls of your life. The yearning and writhing and pushing until one day, one day, you emerge from the wreck, embracing both the immense dawn and dusk of the body, glistening, beautiful, just as you are. Take a minute or two to allow the words to settle. Thank you for your efforts. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
donate.